0: Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Heberg. How's everyone doing? I hope you guys were all able to celebrate Halloween in style. Now that it's over, it's the time where it's become socially acceptable to start thinking about Christmas and dishing out those Spotify Christmas tunes. Or you might not, and instead, like me two years ago, are currently frantically creating a spreadsheet of all the jobs you're applying to, the application deadlines, and whether you've heard back from any one of them. Either way, you've come to the right place to seek refuge, for we are going to give you some interesting food for thought as this week we'll be discussing all things private client with Joshua Ryan, a solicitor at Radcliffe's Le Brasseur. In the episode, we discuss the umbrella term that is private client, the hybrid, generalist, specialist nature of the role, and why it's an exciting time to enter into the practice area in light of globalization, crypto assets, and the greatest generational transfer of wealth in our lifetime. Outside of nerding out on the world of private client, we also take some time to discuss the value of doing a year abroad as part of your law degree, the importance of networking, and appreciating starting out at an entry role when entering into a law firm. So without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. josh welcome to legal tea how are you doing today uh doing well thanks max how are you i'm doing very well now we've got so much to talk about but before we jump in why don't you tell the
1: audience a little bit about yourself okay so um my name is josh i'm a solicitor at Radcliffe labrussa in london um i work in tax trust and succession uh, so what that means is i deal with individuals in their personal capacity as opposed to dealing with their companies or potential issues such as family issues um and yes i've, I've been in the role for one and i really enjoy it fantastic so what is this world of kind of private client so private client uh deals with individuals in terms of their assets so quite a few firms name it in in different ways so some refer to it as tax trust and succession some refer to it as private wealth Private client is also another term that's used. Uh, so it just deals with individuals and their assets. Um, so what that would be, would be thinking about how to hold assets in terms of uh, tax efficiency, uh, how to deal with the devolution of assets. Uh, so if if someone dies, how to pass assets to future generations. Um, and, and tax is obviously a very key point, um, but it's not the only primary concern in this area because uh, as with most people, uh, everyone's life is, isn't focused solely on tax and maybe other drivers in people's lives. So it's, it's, it's to do with structuring assets for the most part.
0: That's amazing. And would you consider yourself, because uh, as you said, you're dealing primarily with assets, but there's so many kind of applicable laws um, with the treatment of one's assets and the structuring of one's asset. Would you consider yourself, say, a, a generalist or a specialist?
1: Um. I think I would say I'm possibly both, which is a a bit of a rubbish answer. Um, So I'm a generalist in that uh, naturally I would touch on other areas of law. Uh, So, for example, uh, property. Property is is quite often one of the most valuable assets that individuals own. So we would quite often deal with property, whether that's transferring it to a trust, uh, liquidating the property, um, dealing with the tax on property. Um, likewise companies, uh, individuals that own companies they, they need to be dealt with too um, immigration, people coming and going we, we deal with kind of a lot of areas in a very broad sense but actually uh, I do consider myself more of a specialist in that if you need tax advice if you need succession advice then, then we are the guys to go to um, so we also, in the same way that our work involves other areas of law other areas of law need to come to us for advice. So if you think about, say, uh, litigation, if you were to have a settlement or of of some kind, you would want to first come to make sure that, A, it works from a, a succession point of view, i.e. if you were to have a trust in place, you'd want to make sure that it works. But more importantly, uh, you would want to make sure that the tax position is correct and you're not creating a huge problem by settling in the way that you are from a tax point of view. So, so yes, both in that I deal with various areas of law, but a specialist in that actually the, the kind of tax succession points are difficult. And so that's where where I am a specialist.
0: That's that's where the expert comes in. So if, if I get this right, you I mean, you know, you're a specialist in the sense that kind of you're advising on matters with taxation of assets and the succession of assets. But at the same time, you're not siloed, and kind of you interact uh, on a day to day basis or on a regular basis with these other areas of law that a firm has.
1: Yes, that that pretty much is it in a nutshell. So if you think about uh, every individual, everyone is is ever so slightly different. Um, so if they come to you saying, "Look, here we are. We just need some some form of estate plan, uh, someone to look at where we are, and just make sure that's working correctly," naturally it will involve other areas so talk about general uh blogs on the street uh, potentially in london but but obviously in bigger cities more often than not there will be an international connection um so you might think oh there's this international connection what do we think about that or it might be that there are family issues so for example there might be more than one family in the background you might want to provide for both so it, you do very much so touch on other areas in your day-to-day
0: it's starting to sound like one of those problem questions at uni where you had all these different differentiating factors, which made it so unique. So I'm I'm actually quite curious when, when you get kind of an individual coming up to you, do, do you kind of, you know, relish the fact of these differentiating factors or all these different things that kind of raise so many legal issues?
1: Exactly. I, I think that's exactly it. I think uh, in, in terms of this area of law, that is one of the the key drivers as to why I really enjoy working in it. Uh, day one, you could have someone that comes in. Uh, as an example, I had uh, some clients that came to see me about a week ago. And uh, the the wife mentioned accidentally that her parents were from the US. And then that gave rise to a lot of issues in relation to US taxation that we I, I wouldn't have thought I'd have to deal with. But she mentioned it. There we go. We need to tackle it because there's no point on, on sitting on these things. Likewise, the next day, someone may, be looking to sell some property, and say, "Look, how do I do it?" And in the background, and this is actually a, another client of mine that I have advised recently, who was looking to move outside of the UK. So, look, is there anything we can do there? Should we Should we think about when to time the the sale of the property? It, it, it's every day is very varied um, because individuals are varied, and that's what makes it very nice, uh, a very really interesting area to work in. One of the kind of common
0: stereotypes or perceptions around kind of the law uh, addressing private client is that, you know, all these clients are are multimillionaires or billionaires because they can afford kind of this legal advice to structure their assets, reduce their tax liability, plan their secession. Would you say that's, that's a fair characterization? Uh, cause you know, from the examples that you've been given, it seems a lot more kind of varied than just say the top 1% uh, of people seeking your type of advice.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's possibly true in that it is varied. I think obviously there's, uh, there are different markets and and different, uh, practitioners operate in different markets. So there is, there are the 1% of where um, of where everything is very international. So, so, uh, it it's it's really exciting when you have difficult domicile and tax issues, and and that's one area. But on on the other end, if you think about say potentially a more high street firm of solicitors, uh, just getting that sense of satisfaction with helping an elderly couple prepare a will, it might they might not have a large amount of assets, they might be fairly modest, but you get that real sense of satisfaction when you would help them achieve their aims, and then there are various degrees as you go up the chain. So for the UK, if you're a married couple, one of the key points are are the tax allowances. So if you're working just beneath the tax allowances or if you're working just over the tax allowances, kind of middle England families will have potentially tax issues that you can drive through. And then as you keep going up the chain, there are different issues. So likewise, you may be then talking towards business owners with businesses or or going on to uh, larger businesses and, and various different, holding structures here there and everywhere so i i think yes kind of coming back to your question private client obviously works very well for the the kind of uh more affluent high net worth ultra high net worth individuals because there's more there to structure but in terms of uh kind of your practitioners they they range from from those that work in in the high net worth ultra high net worth sphere to those that work on, on kind of the high street with those more modest means and that there's kind of the 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 ranges between as well
0: Oh, fantastic. I mean, it goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier, that that no case is kind of truly the same as the other and they're always kind of differentiating factors. Now, coming back to your point about um, your examples, especially where one person has assets or or family in another jurisdiction, how has kind of the increased global mobility affected kind of your practice area, Um, specifically as well uh, with regard to Brexit? You know, has that kind of, you know, thrown a span in the works as to how you would previously deal with these issues of secession and taxation?
1: Uh, Brexit, not so much, but uh, I, I think possibly that the fact that we are in an ever more interconnected society does change the type of work that we do. Um, the, the fact that uh, in, individuals have connections with more than one country mean that there's potentially more, more that you can do, more that you need to think about, but also more risk. As in, if I, I, I gave the example of the US-connected person before um, why that's quite important for the u.s people is because uh, if you're a u.s citizen uh, whether by accident or not and, and that's quite a, a fun thing to google later you're taxed on your worldwide income and gains so that means that if you have assets in the uk they could incur u.s tax and so you would want to think about potentially structure that structuring them in the uk in a sensible way to potentially mitigate that or or to think about that. And in in terms of kind of mobility, it it is very important. If we think about actually one of the key recent issues would have been uh, the lockdowns. If you have people that are tax resident, depending upon where they spend a certain amount of time, the lockdowns have stopped them being able to move around. And so if they had to spend 183 days here or, or, or in a different country and they can't do that, then that would affect their tax residency. So that creates a further issue. Um, but no, I think global mobility is 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 obviously here to stay, but it's it's what makes this area interesting. So um, obviously I've mentioned the US a lot, but in terms of kind of other countries, there are, are, are so many issues. And what we try to do as kind of private client lawyers is to say, how does that work from a UK sphere? Um, so, if I were to give another example of the French civil system, they don't technically recognise trusts, um, even though they do now because of uh, the Hague Convention. But it doesn't necessarily work within their civil law system. But they have other structures. So, there's one that's known as a usufruit. Um, and you need to think about, from a UK perspective, if someone benefits from that here, how how is that structure classed in UK law? Because how it's classed will have an impact upon how it's taxed and potentially have an impact on what you can do with it. So, yeah, in terms of the global mobility, it, it's really, really kind of coming into the focus as we are more in connected, but it's what makes this area really fun, I, I think, at least.
0: Moving on to kind of a, a different um, recent trend in the world, obviously kind of crypto bitcoins uh have taken kind of the world by force um i was wondering as to kind of you know how how has that impacted your practice area and whether you've had kind of ever dealt with clients who have say crypto assets
1: yes uh, quite a few of my clients um normally the younger ones i (laughs) am going to be honest have. Large amounts of crypto assets, um, and I think it's something that uh, we all need to be aware of. And, that, and in terms of those working with individuals, um, so on a very base level, um, where are the crypto assets? Now, that's actually one of the key attractions of them. They're not pegged to anything. They're not uh, tied to one country. But from a, a UK side, you need to think about: Look, do these assets belong in the UK? Can the UK tax them, or are they not in the uk in which case for some people the uk cannot tax them and so it's things like that which actually have need to be bottomed out and actually they have recently so it's it's a bit of a a non-starter but yes crypto assets are, are kind of going to infiltrate our life ever more i think um so have you heard of, of uh, libra that i think it's called libra the facebook currency that was going to be launched
0: yeah i heard but it uh, it, it failed or it did it ne- they never launched it in the end right
1: yeah, so when it was announced, and and kind of for kind of global cryptocurrencies, the fact that they're not pegged to any any um, currency means that every time you use it and dispose of it, essentially you could be making a gain, a capital gain. So you would need to pay tax on it because if the value of Libra increases and you then use it to buy something, then you've quite it's an interesting kind of crystallize in that gain. So it, the law hasn't kept up to date with what's going to happen, but equally, these cryptocurrencies are possibly creating a lot of issues that people won't be aware of. Um, so if we use Libra, if you use it to buy a car, you could have incurred a a capital gain on when you bought it. So you're incurring tax liabilities without realizing it, it it's it's going to be quite an interesting area, I think, in terms of how it is going to be policed, um if it's going to be policed um, in, in those types of areas. But yes, in in terms of kind of my area, it's obviously something we need to be aware of. We need to make sure that it's dealt with um If, for example, someone owns cryptocurrencies, uh, such as Bitcoin, and you don't have all the the documents needed to transfer them onto the next set of of beneficiaries, such as the the cryptocurrency keys, that's going to create a a lot of problems. And so it's something as a private client lawyer, you you do need to tackle head on to make sure that everything's set up for when it's needed. You almost have to become a crypto crypto expert uh, in that sense, I imagine. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to say if I've made any errors in terms of my terminology, yes, I I'll take them because cryptocurrency is is, is is new. And if you're not in the industry or or you don't know it, then it's all quite new in terms of terminology and how they work. So it's 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 interesting. It's it's keep things fresh.
0: Now I don't want to delve into kind of uh, a deep theoretical kind of discussion on, on 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 tax liability but I was actually wondering on the on on what you said in the beginning with regards to crypto assets about you know whether those assets are, are based in the UK and and the regulations that uh, the UK is is preparing or considering so how how does that work because obviously kind of crypto assets are in the decentralized Uh, blockchain, so obviously kind of talking to computers all over the world. How are UK regulators kind of found a way around that?
1: Holding me to it now. Um, (laughs) In terms of UK regulators, broadly, it's where you're based, your residential tax residency. So if you are based here, then there will be tax here. Now, why that is actually quite important is because, um, and, and not to go into too much detail, but certain people If you if you come to the UK from other countries, there is a way to be taxed on only income and gains that you create in the UK. Now, why is that important? It's important, for example, for if you're an Erasmus student that comes over to the UK for one year or possibly not Erasmus anymore, but whatever the new terminology is, the Turin students. um, You wouldn't want uh, to be taxed on something that happened back in your home country if you're only going to be here for such a limited period of time. So. Having cryptocurrencies pegged to where you live possibly is is a negative for those that come to the UK and want to stay for such a short period of time and not be taxed on assets elsewhere um, that it could cause a problem. I I don't know if that makes sense because I I try to keep it fairly light. but, uh, But yes, it's more you don't want to if you were to come to the UK and have your cryptocurrencies back home. You wouldn't want inadvertently there to be a tax charge in the UK if you plan very quickly to move outside of the UK. But for whatever reason, that tax charge arises, It's it just kind of a bit of a, a worst case scenario for you, potentially.
0: Yeah, no, 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 no. that makes sense. And I mean, obviously, I, I can imagine that, you know, there'll be further kind of exceptional cases, loopholes and the like. So it's a, I can foresee it being a very developing matter. In, in terms of kind of our generation Currently, you know, and from a more sociological point of view, how would you characterize um, the world of private client, particularly from the secession point of view? Um, You know, previous generations are kind of living longer, getting older. um, And so we see kind of, I imagine there being a transfer of wealth of some sort.
1: Exactly. I I think, yes, no, you're you're entirely right in that. We are going through a huge uh, generational transfer of wealth from potentially baby boomers uh, who are sadly starting to pass away and passing their assets down to their children. Um, And so what that means is that um, over the past couple of years, more baby boomers have, have started to pass away and the needs of their children who will be inheriting large sums of money, potentially, need to be taken into account. So whereas traditionally certain people might have enjoyed having a nice big house in the country, um, with, with acres of land and all the rest, new generations might not find that as appealing. It might not uh, match their wishes. They might, as as I have a client, want to go travelling all the time. And so, how do you help fund them to travel here, there, and everywhere all the time, rather than say, help run a big country house? That that's a different focus. Or in in terms of investments, uh, if you've got this large pot of money that they've inherited, how do they want to think about investing it? Now, obviously. The actual investments are outside of uh what we can do but you need to be aware of what they need so for example impact investing is is a very hot topic it's a bit of a buzzword but how do you use your money to achieve a good aim that's in line with your own personal uh wishes that's something that is 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 more important if you think about uh recent trends in terms of protests you've got extinction rebellion so would With someone from that potentially is a member of Extinction Rebellion, want to invest in BP or uh, another oil producer? um, Potentially, potentially not. That that's something that would need to to, you would need to think about. And then also just in terms of kind of traditional family setups, family setups are are different now. Um, If if we think about kind of uh, potentially, you might have more than one family during your life. You might have uh, non-traditional families uh, during your life. So, for example, you might have uh, LGBT members of the family, for example. Uh, You might have um, sons that have transitioned into daughters. And so these are all things that potentially weren't uh, at the forefront of what you need to think about. But actually now we're in a modern, more modern society, rather. Um, These are things that you need to think about to make sure that what the client wants to happen will happen based upon current circumstances
0: that's quite exciting because it it basically kind of changes the the work that you do i mean again kind of you know still in in the same area but you know especially focusing on how do you distribute assets or how do you maintain those assets uh for people it seems like you know Whereas previously they'd be certain more in a kind of domesticized, kind of traditional format. Now with the younger generation, you know, it's much more investment oriented or kind of very much kind of actioning on those assets and, and using them for different purposes. So I can imagine your role must be changing also as it
1: goes. Exactly. So I, I think the the one thing to to kind of keep in mind is that everyone is completely different. And so <laughs> it 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 is kind of quite difficult to say in terms of uh what is happening it it it's it's everyone's situation is so different that um you kind of it's quite difficult to lump people together but yes in terms of our role it it is changing and and I think that's actually why I really enjoy this role um is because you are an advisor uh you you give advice and the end product so to speak is a as a result of your advice so as the family changes, your advice would change. What would happen would change, and so it, it's continual. It's moving. It, it, it's less so of a one-off transaction. It's kind of a, a continually moving, repeated. It, it's something that constantly changes, which I don't know. I I, I can only see as a positive for for, for someone working in this area.
0: And, and talking about kind of your role and your day-to-day, I mean, obviously, we, we've we established by now that kind of, you know, your work is is very dynamic in the sense that, you know, each case is different. Each individual has its own issues that you've got to kind of address and, and structure in a certain way. But in terms of kind of the actual work, so, you know, when I hear taxation and secession, I think of the Typical kind of accountant with one of those um, bespoke calculators, you know, calculating all the assets, taking off the, the liabilities or the exemptions and the reliefs. And then with secession, obviously kind of scrutinizing the wording of the of, of the wills.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're still right in terms of that is it's kind of bread and butter work. Um, but what in terms of what you would do as a private client lawyer would be to put, for example, the wills in place. How would you want those wills to be structured? What would you want to happen after death? In terms of during your lifetime, obviously, think about the taxes. Um, it's not so much what are the, the income, the outgoings and what's on the tax return. It's say how do we put steps in place now what advice would we give to potentially uh think about tax positions in the future are there any steps that we can do now and most likely that will then lead to to further work so for example trusts are very key in terms of potentially people wanting to use them for tax saving but but not only tax saving and so from a, a kind of day-to-day point of view it'll be putting in place the trust structure preparing a document um And then as the lifetime of the family or whoever it is evolves, amending the trust to deal with that. Uh, So for example, trusts are under ever increasing scrutiny. um, And so there's regulations that need to be complied with and advised on trustees have duties and roles to to comply with and you would need to advise them in terms of uh, kind of getting money in and out of a trust or, or rather out of a trust. How do you do it? Can you do it? How do you document it? And, and that's kind of yes, in in terms of very bread and butter stuff, what what you could do, and it. it's 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 good drafting work, it's good kind of uh, advisory work. You use your head to think about what you would be the best solution for your clients. Yeah, it, I I think you're you're right, but also on top of that, you've you you've got to think about all the other bits. So if you are, for example, putting a property into a trust, you need to prepare the property forms to do that, to make sure that it all goes into the trust properly, register it in the new names. If you think about doing things with corporate structures, you need to do the same. So you do touch on a lot of other areas too. But in terms of bread and butter, it is kind of advisory style uh, work with wills, trusts, whatever it is at the end uh, as a kind of finished product, as it were.
0: Actually, just out of curiosity, um, w- with regards to you know structuring wills and also kind of managing with trusts, how how has the the pandemic impacted specifically? Kind of you know the signing of of deeds. Um, one of the few things that I that I take away from my from my course in trusts and kind of property is obviously with deeds, it has to be kind of signed in the presence of kind of witnesses. Uh, same thing with a will. So with the pandemic. How, has there been a, any flexibility with that? I mean, with technology, you have uh, things like electronic signatures. You know, has has the U have UK regulators accept, accepted e-signatures as a valid kind of uh, signature in a deed, or how has kind of witnessing been conducted?
1: So, so the, yes, um, they have uh, advanced slightly for for the pandemic. So the key one was actually with wills. Um, previously, you had to be uh, two people pretty much in a room sat in front of the person signing the will, whereas now you could, you can do it through Zoom. However, most practitioners agree that that's actually risky. Um, so there are very, loads of uh, issues in terms of signing a will through Zoom. For example, you still need two people to witness a signature and the will would then need to be transferred between the witnesses. Um, so what happens if uh, one of the witnesses dies and doesn't sign it? Um it, it's just um possibly a, a bit of an issue. So in terms of um being kind of uh modern in terms of how to finalize wills and deeds, it's not that modern deeds still sign in person in front of a witness, and and you generally just circulate the documents. Uh, the only thing that's actually quite interesting is there is a commission reviewing how to update wills. Um, and I think that's actually going to be quite interesting because there are places such as Australia where text messages, and there was a case, I think, quite a, uh, probably about two years ago, where a text message was found to be a valid will. Now, I'm not necessarily too keen on that approach. I, I think, great, it makes sense. Everyone can make a will. Everyone, if worse comes to worse, you can very quickly send a text message to say, this is what I want to happen. And good news is you don't need to get comply with the formalities that are a bit cumbersome and, and slows the process down. But how do we know what the the headspace was of the person making the will? How do we know that they actually sent that text? It, it just adds into increasing issues. And I think when you approach things with a bit of a light touch regulation, fine, it, it's possibly good, but actually it just leads to greater lit- litigation at the other end. So if for example we use the, the text message example what if they disinherited their family and gave it all to just one person potentially a new partner if you were the family members you would be thinking this just doesn't sit right in which case you would then potentially launch a claim i think there is so it, it kind of it's good that we're moving towards a more digital society and our area of law and private client does need to catch up however there are so many risks I think I'm just a bit apprehensive. Um, So I think actually the European way actually is quite good in that you need to go in front of a notary who is a a kind of uh, a civil law lawyer to sign your will um, to create one type of will and I think that's actually if you have it it, it's quite a good safeguard against those types of issues in terms of what was the person's capacity like at the time of creating the will what was kind of undue influence or fraud It, it kind of Stops these issues arising but i think there is a competition element of that of where the government couldn't be seen to be having one elite profession just getting all the work from this so it, it, it's possibly not in in line with current government thinking but i do think that relaxing the regulations has to be done very carefully or else it just creates more problems down the line than it solves
0: yeah, that's, that's, that's actually quite a good point i never really thought it about uh, about it like that and it's almost kind of you know like a false economy you're you're creating efficiencies on the one hand by you know facilitating electronic kind of signature and witnessing but on the other hand you're creating a whole series of headaches in terms of you know proving capacity and obviously kind of uh, intention and the like so I don't know for, for me pr- prior to this conversation I would have said you know technology fought for the win uh, anything to kind of make it more accessible more efficient uh please let's do it but um no, it's quite i i i didn't think about it like that in terms of the the other problems
1: that might arise as a result of these efficiencies so there is a role for technology i think that i i don't see why there's any reason why you cannot have an e will so for example a will that is linked into the blockchain so as soon as you've died and your death is registered the the, the terms of the will could be carried out i e the property will be transferred in accordance with the will. The assets that you have could be valued straight away, and and the tax calculation just taken out automatically. It could all be automated, which um, would, would cause a lot of uh, job losses. But I, I think there's no reason why that that cannot happen. However, I, I think there are there are risks in terms of doing that. How would you how would you get it authenticated? How how would you confirm capacity? And I think it might be that you just have dual wills so one that you sign in person or kind of a statement that it was signed correctly and then one that is done electronically as in there, there's another type of document called the lasting power of attorney and what it does is it allows you to nominate someone else to make decisions on your behalf if you're unable to now the government move is to put that entirely online so you can sign them online everyone that is kind of a party to it can, can do it all online. And I think that's great. That makes it more accessible. More people can do it. However, with lasting powers of attorney, fraud of people that are the attorneys of taking gifts from, from the person, taking cash, doing uh, questionable things, people not having capacity when they were put in place, it's increasing. I've and obviously, I've, got, I've had a fairly short career, but I've come across it myself. And I think if we're moving towards this more digital world, that's great. That It's, it's, it's a good thing all around. But I think the key point is people that put wills and laws and powers of attorney in, in place might be vulnerable. And I think that's the the key, the key thing that worries me in terms of with Latin Powers of attorney. If you had it in paper that you had to come see someone to sit down to talk about it sensibly and they would then sign off, then, then that is is a good thing, but it is cumbersome and that it kind of slows up the the process. I don't know. I don't know what the solution would be, but I, I think it needs to be thought about quite carefully.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the billion dollar question, um, and and uh, I totally agree that it, uh, it's an important consideration. You know, when we are accommodating or transforming uh, these digital solutions, that we also proportionally or reciprocally reflect on how do we transport the safeguards that are in place onto the digital environment to ensure that at the end of the day, the same thing is happening—that uh, you know, people of capacity with the intention or executing their wills, executing their lasting powers of attorneys and so forth. Exactly. One of the questions that I had as well with with private client is how have you found the you know, relationship? Because I can imagine in comparison to, to working in corporate or commercial or, or in other areas that Obviously, you you know a lot about an individual's life based on kind of the assets they have and kind of you know their, their stories. That I, I imagine you you have to kind of record just to know all the issues that are popping up. So, how have you found that kind of relationship with these bespoke individuals?
1: I, I think that's my favorite part of the job. To be honest, um, there, there's something nice about being a part of a family, and and you are you are still the advisor, you are still the professional. So, I think that line is is key. But it's nice to be that person that someone turns to when they need some advice. So if I were to give an example, um, I, I move firms um, and to have families follow you from previous firms to your current firm is just a really nice feeling because you feel that they trust you with their, in you know, the most secrets with their personal affairs. And it's a nice feeling to to feel that you've got that connection with someone. I think that is, 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 is a very nice part of our, our job you do sometimes have to deal with issues that are problematic. When you find out, for example, people go through divorces or X, Y, Z has died, it, it might cause an issue with the family. But actually, um, I, I think being the advisor to families, to individuals, it, it, it's a really nice place to be. And if you get repeat work from it, then you're obviously doing something right. And it, it's nice to know that they like you, because I do think... Um, and I think it's all areas of law. I, I don't think it's the same with just private client. But I do think uh, a lot of being a good lawyer is, is just being nice and likable. And so if you are and people like you for it, then it's really rewarding.
0: I can especially imagine that when it comes to, to matters such as taxation and, and cessation, which are things that we think about and consider, but you know the, the, the legislation, the rules, the exceptions to the rules, the exceptions to the exceptions, Can be quite a bollock for for somebody that doesn't study law. So I can imagine as well that beyond you know providing kind of the the legal service, you also kind of provide that personal service of you know relieving people of of their anxieties and their worries when it comes to these matters.
1: Yeah, I I I do think so. I I think it's key to note we are lawyers first and foremost, and it it does actually help. So if I if I use the example of a, a matter I'm doing at the moment, it's a family, and there is potential that. Is going to be a big upset and there's going to be litigation involved. One of the good things about my role is that actually I am the professional. I can get involved and take the emotion out of it. And so that's really nice just to be able to say, look, this is the way that we can resolve it. You you don't have the emotional elements that are causing half of the animosity between the parties, you're also not in the litigation stage where people are entrenched and you can resolve these issues quite nicely. I think it's, it's, it's quite nice to be the grown-up in the room, as it were.
0: And what would you say has been the highlight moment on the job so far? I mean, you, you've given us plenty of examples uh, to pick from. But I then...
1: won't bore you with more, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, is there, is there a highlight moment of, out of all of them or...? It's actually quite a difficult one. I, I think the thing that I like most about my job is is having that trusted advisor status and, and people calling you up to say, hi Josh, how are you? This is what's going on and this is what I like to do. I, I think that is actually my favorite part of the job. And and for example, having having the families that have followed me, it it's really rewarding. It shows that you're doing something well. There are obviously difficult cases that stick with you, um, as as in, in, in all areas. So Naturally, a part of our job is people dying. Death is is never easy um, for all those involved, but some of the situations that uh, you find yourself in where people have died are quite harrowing. it's It's quite a difficult area, and they're the ones that have stuck with me for the most part, but actually if you think about it you are the professional that are helping the family get through this and I always say family it's it's not always just family it could be friends and all the rest but you're helping the people get through this and so whilst you're dealing with it in a professional environment um, if you are those people dealing with it themselves they're going through a very hard time and it's quite nice to be the rock that they can rely upon just to to sort everything out so that's a bit depressing, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> possibly not the most highlight moment, but actually it's, it's it's just such a rewarding area. I really enjoy it. Um, and, and so I don't really have a, a particular highlight. Obviously there are a very big cases that I've worked on that I've really enjoyed, but um, I, I think possibly to say them out loud, it's only good when you know what they're doing. They're quite technical and I quite enjoy getting your teeth into something technical and, and thinking about it. And I think that's what I enjoy. But when you repeat it to other people, it just doesn't. It doesn't sound as good. But it's, <laughs> you need a. You're going to need a translator for that. <laughs> I was going to say. It's, it's, you know when you're getting boring in the pub when you're when you're saying, uh, "I dealt with this today." It, it's Want <laughs> uh, to move on? <laughs> and so, yeah. W- w-
0: what got you into into private client? Was it love at first sight? Did you already know from the get go, or how how was your journey?
1: Um, not at all. I thought I was going to be. First of all, I thought I was going to be a, a corporate commercial lawyer, um, and then I did the back schemes and thought it possibly wasn't for me. In that, I I, I feel I enjoy working with individuals. You you have that face to face that you don't possibly have when there's a, a corporate on the other end. Um, I then thought I was going to be a litigator, and during my training contract, I ruled it out. Um, I get why people love it, but I think for me, I like the advisory nature of private client, and so it, it very much so was a not a love at first sight. I I didn't know it was for me, but it was a process of elimination as to say, not this, not that. And I I feel it sits perfectly between those looking for the, the kind of corporate commercial world where you're dealing with, with large amounts of money and all the rest. And those dealing with the personal side of law where you're dealing with families and individuals. I I, I couldn't do something that possibly pushes too far one way or the other. And it sits perfectly between them, which is why I think, It's a very good match for me.
0: And so I saw from your profile that you did kind of law with, was it French law? Yes. Looking back now, do you feel that kind of doing that with French law option as well kind of contributed value to um, working in practice?
1: Entirely. I I think it entirely does. Um, I I cannot uh, praise it enough. Um, Just from a very simple point of view, if I were to call up uh, someone in France, I can call up whoever I'm talking to and talk to them uh, in French, which obviously language skills you can get from other places, but it's just really easy to be able to talk to them. And one of the benefits is things don't translate well. So legal terminology and legal processes in different systems are different and so you've got to be very careful of that and so just to have I'm not a French lawyer but to have the grounding and to say this does this this is the process um, or to be able to read up on it or or talk to to the other side is just really easy and equally for clients it's it's quite I hope reassuring to say that this person has experience they have a grounding in it I won't advise on it myself but they know what will happen. predict what we need to think about before it turns up. Um, and, and obviously people on the other side quite often speak English too, um, or, or for the most part do. So that's very useful too. But I think it's the the kind of soft skills of having that grounding that are really useful. And, and on a site aside, um, it's really useful to have that international network already set up. So if you do have a, a query, you can call someone up who is based in in, in whatever jurisdiction and they can say, as a friend, look, this is what you. Th- I think you need to do, or I'll put you in contact with XYZ who does this. It is just really invaluable. And I don't think I would have got that had I done straight law at university. That's amazing
0: to, to see it in kind of those three perspectives. On, on the one hand, just kind of language learning. On, on the other hand, getting to the, the basics or the fundamentals of the different legal system allows you obviously to interact with that other legal system on certain matters a lot more and then thirdly just a kind of network of people um so that you can kind of obviously relay or ask for information or advice from an expert in that legal system based on your time there
1: exactly yes and i and i think it comes actually in my work um at the moment it comes up quite often and just naturally i i seem to find french clients and just to be able to say simple things as well uh, such as when they say where they live, you can say, Oh, I know there, I visited there while I was living there. Or they ask me, um, they, they tend to have looked on, on on my profile and said, Oh, I saw you studied in XYZ. Um, do you like going to and um, so I I studied in the Alps. So they say about going to the ski resorts or or whatever it is. And um it it's it's a really nice opener. Um and just on a, on a slighter side, that doesn't really mean anything, but it means you have a, a slight connection before, before you start.
0: And what would you say are, are the skills necessary to work in private client? So for me, kind of my burning question is, you know, do you need to have liked trusts and equity uh, back in law
1: school? Because I think that for me is a, is a non-starter. <laughs> I I thought we could have made a private client lawyer out to be (laughs) maxed. No, um, so I actually found trust and land were my least favourite areas because it's just very dry. I think it's it's with most things, if you don't have the actual real life uh, scenario in front of you, it just is very dry. Um, But no, I I think certain areas of law are are kind of technical black letter areas of law. You need to know the law. It it is technical. And I think this is one of those areas. Um, And so if you are technically minded, this is possibly one for you. It is a difficult area of law, so you do need to work hard. I think um, the, the types of skills are technical and um, and dealing with people, which obviously all areas are, but certain areas also sway into other areas, such as you need a business uh, mind. Um, I also think dealing with people is, is very key. People will be discussing uh, difficult scenarios with you. And so you just need to know how to deal with people. And, Whilst that sounds very straightforward, of course, all areas of law need to be technically good and, and to be able to deal with people and, and correspond well. Uh, I do think with certain sensitive topics, you need to know how to handle them, which the only way you can really get is by going out and, and talking to people. And, and so I think they apply to mostly to all areas, but because it stands quite nicely between personal law in, in terms of kind of family law, um, housing issues, uh. Uh, employment potentially if you're dealing with employees and, um, and kind of the corporate commercial side is finding balance between both of those in terms of potentially needing the personal skills uh, that you do for personal type of law as well as having kind of technical skills or, or, or dealing with finances as you do for potentially some others.
0: Looking back kind of you know whether it be at university or kind of straight out of university what have you found to be the best ways of, of developing? Uh, these skills
1: oh that's a good one I, I think that it all just comes from experience which is very easy to say once you've had your foot in the door um but experience will lend itself to legal work naturally so there's no reason why law students can't go to networking events there are loads in in london i'm sure there are loads across uh, the country actually there's no harm in going along find an area that might interest you and you can go and talk to someone there about a case. So if you're really interested in criminal law, you can find a criminal law networking event and you can say, I really enjoyed this. They can then talk to you and give you insight into something else that you possibly haven't thought of and, and that's something to go around with. And from that, they you might spark up a connection or there are very similar professions that that would benefit uh, different areas. Um, I, I do think that experience is, is, is very useful. And so I, I think that's possibly something to do now. In terms of kind of private client generally, there are other areas that lend themselves naturally to it um, and, and courses, for example, that you can go on. But my view is that actually to start off, I think you you need to know what you want to do and why you want to do it. And the best way to do that is to talk to people because they may keep talking to you about this case that, that you thought was really interesting. And you might think actually... This isn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. Maybe I like this aspect of it or that. I, I, I do think it's just good to kind of get out there and, and 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 try and get some experience.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, for, I for one am a huge believer in in that of talking to people, kind of finding out their stories. I mean, that's kind of the whole reason for this podcast. But I do believe you get so much value out of kind of just networking and and discussing with other people and kind of finding their insights, their work. Because at the end of the day, it kind of also feeds into your mindset or the work that you might be doing because you've gotten that kind of consideration, that experience from somebody else.
1: Exactly. And I think actually what I should have mentioned also, and think about it now, is uh, don't be afraid to start at the bottom. Um, so um, I, I, I always find it quite strange when people come in um, for whatever role that's at the bottom of the, the, the kind of chain, as it were, and they feel too good that role. And I just never understand it. Um, I I can pitch people in my mind that were just very difficult to work with um, because it it seemed as though they felt as though they were above it. And I think actually that role is really useful because once you know that, you know how to do kind of back office work very well, you'll know why the front office people do what they do. And so naturally you would go into that role and, and do that role and work your way up the chain. I think for those kind of recently graduating it's a very difficult environment to graduate into uh, and not only because of the fact that we've been locked down for so long but also because there are so many uh, kind of people in the market that it just makes it very competitive so there's no harm in taking any experience that you can where you can get it because I personally think that will always be a benefit and you can use that to get the next level up and and just keep working your way up and say for example you worked in, in kind of I I can't think of an example now, but say, for example, you, you worked in some business that you're never going to go into. You don't know where that business will be in six years or where you will be. And possibly you will have a link. Um, you will have that link that will you can rely upon and you say, oh, I know how to deal with this because I I, I used to work for XYZ.
0: Definitely. I love what you said about, you know, don't be, feel afraid to, to start at the bottom and, and see things as a process. Uh, and as you say, there are kind of some remarkable insights from, you know, the bottom that very much empower you to be even better when you do get to kind of where you expected or wanted to start at. Um, and obviously be, be, be humble. I think that's, that's so important, um, in any, in any job and in any industry is just kind of being humble, kind of, um, pushing what you have and talking with people, being open.
1: Yeah. So I, I know people that, um, worked as a paralegal in kind of, uh, property work. Um, so whether that was actual property companies and whether that was actual kind of estate agents. And whilst they don't want to do any property work, property quite often appears in in various areas areas of law. And so they instantly would have an advantage when it comes to dealing with that. Even if it's not in their area, they can bring that to the table. I I do think it, it kind of happens just across the board that it is just useful to to see what you can get and, and don't be afraid to keep going if you get knocked back because you'll get there in the end.
0: Well, fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm sensing, I'm sensing a, a pep talk brewing here, um, <laughs> but uh, I always love to, to, to end the podcast with a bit of a lighthearted note. Um, so Josh, you've already told us that uh, equity trusts and uh, kind of land were a bit of a snooze during the LLB. Um, so why don't you tell us what your favorite dramatized legal character on TV or movies was and why?
1: So, I think it is a bit of a cop out because this is quite. A, as I mentioned before this is quite a hard one to come to, but I actually chose Billy Flynn from Chicago Ooh. because whenever he went into the prison, everyone always had a story to tell him, and they felt as though he could get them out of the the problem. It's quite quite a, a remote link to kind of trust work, but, but I think he was he was someone that I thought actually, you know what, he's a good lawyer. Of sorts. And I want to be like that. Of sorts.
0: I've actually never watched Chicago, I must confess.
1: Is it Uh, a TV show or a movie? No, it's uh, a musical. Um, So you won't get any of those of sorts comments. (laughs) It it was a bit uh, questionable uh, in in some
0: ways. (laughs) Fantastic. So, Josh, um, if any of our audience want to reach out with any uh, follow up questions, uh, can they? And if so, how?
1: Of course. um, Just ping me an email uh, or on LinkedIn. Just feel free to to send, send a message and I'm sure I'll be able to help.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Josh. I had a lovely conversation.
1: Me too. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about private client and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Josh. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode and Matt Gedridge for the absolute bang of a theme song now as you might have heard Legal Tea is hiring enjoying our exquisite brew have a knack for social media marketing and outreach and are an avid tea drinker become the marketer at Legal Tea if you're interested send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk or DM us on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk till next time <laughs>